the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, it is a delight to do so, as promised, with the great Tevi Troy. Dr. Troy is a presidential and cultural historian. Uh, Among other books, he's written Fight House Rivalries in the White House, From Truman to Trump, Shall We Wake the President, Intellectuals in the American Presidency, What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted. Uh, You can pick up his writings everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to an interesting piece he had in the Dispatch that I want to talk to him a lot about. Tevi, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. How are you, man? Yes, I am excited to be on the air, and I'm also excited to come visit you next month in October. Yeah, I was just mentioning in the last hour, you are coming out here for your own debate. Uh, We'll talk about the presidential debate tonight. You're coming out for your own debate. And I uh, promised uh, the audience that uh, in your uh, stay here that you're going to come and do the show with me for all three hours One of these when, when, uh, when you're here visiting, yeah? I can't wait. I'm excited about it. Yeah, that'll be fun. You'll co-host with me. You want to say something about the debate you'll be doing? Yeah, I'm doing a series of debates with Rabbi David Saperstein. As uh, regular listeners of the show know, I'm a member of the Jewish tradition, uh, but I'm Orthodox and a conservative whereas Rabbi Saperstein is a reform and a progressive. And we're going to discuss this question of whether the um, progressive or liberal approach is better for America and for American Jews, or the conservative approach is better. And obviously, you know where I stand on this. I'm with the conservative approach, and I look forward to hashing it out with Rabbi Saperstein uh, in person in Phoenix, and we'll also go to a couple of other cities. Can, can, uh, can, uh, can people in, in listening audience attend this event, attend this debate? Um, stay tuned for details. Okay, great. We will get the details, because I know there will be great interest in that. We get that question often. How is it? it? About a lot of different minorities, and maybe it gets to some of your column, too, in the dispatch. But how is it that it is so clear to so many of us that certain ideological perspectives and certain parties, namely conservative and Republican, policies would be so much more beneficial to minority voting blocks whose voting interests appear to be just quite contrary to that, so adhering are they to uh, the left and the Democratic Party. Uh, We can get into that in a few minutes, too. I have to mention one other thing I quoted you yesterday on. I brought your name up in vain a little bit yesterday. I was uh, noticing a friend of mine at ASU was talking about the tremendous disparity between males and female uh, enrollment at ASU, at Arizona State University. It's, it's something we've seen noted nationwide. And I was just talking about my views on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that men aren't going to college. Um, and my views on that have shifted, particularly because, in my view, for the most part, with the exception of about five colleges you can count on one hand, most of them are saturated and soaked in Marxist doctrine, which is kind of like what Tevi, I said, said about going to summer camps as a kid. He didn't like (laughs) summer camps because he liked freedom. The only difference being 
that the summer camps were kind of more Maoist Marxist, where you had no freedom and the ideology, whereas colleges are just the Marxism ideology with total uninhibited freedom. Is that a fair? Is that a fair, is that a fair analysis? Yeah, on I the think quick? it's a pretty fair description of both the summer camps I went to, and also the uninhibited freedom on a college campus, which isn't necessarily good for the students either. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. I think there there should be limits on you know how much you should be drinking and what you know what, what kind of activities you engage in. But uh, that, that's not what they're about in college. They're only about limiting your ability to think different thoughts than the uh, regular woke belief. Um, but you can't actually you, you can't limit their behaviors in any way. But you um, you can limit their thought, and I, I think it's problematic. I was I, you know to get a sense of the behavioral on this. I was talking um, in the last hour about this. Uh, Mark Judge had done a, done a synopsis of an essay you and I have been long familiar with, an essay of our old friend Norman Podhortz's about Allen Ginsberg and that very famous meeting he had with him and Jack Kerouac in 1958, and what. Norman Podhortz had predicted over the threat that Allen Ginsberg had issued to him about getting to him through his children. He didn't get Norman's children, but, you know, getting to the wider culture through their children. And Norman does a very good description in that essay of the kind of libertine-ism that the beat culture uh, stood for, and that does um, now suffuse so much of our of our young adult population, particularly on the college campus. Fair enough? It's kind of interesting that, um, you know, uh, Ginsburg was wrong in the micro sense. Yeah. I know Norman's children, and some of them, including John Bedard, are good friends of mine. Um, and so he didn't get them. But in the macro sense, Ginsburg was right. Yeah. And the, uh, the subsequent generation yeah. did go in uh, some unfortunate direction. It's not universal. I mean, look, you're, you know, you're still out there taking everyday stuff, and uh, you do great work I, I, on the I radio. got David Dahl here, here my producer. He's a young man. David Dahl. Yeah. Yeah. Is good all. But the um, the reigning institutions of American culture uh, share one ideology, and I think it's problematic. Yeah, yeah. I was mentioning to the audience all of this warm up. I hope it's okay. It's just you're you're such a mind alive. You're always doing such interesting intellectual pursuits. I was mentioned in the audience that you and I were talking about that essay ourselves before Mark Judge wrote about it. Because you teach a college course in New York and were talking with me about essays you wanted to give your students, a handful of essays that you thought were kind of landmark essays. And perhaps that one was too rough, though we talked about possibly including it. And I was curious if you did settle on on the essays you want to share with your students or if that's something you can share with us. Yeah, I mean, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Shiva University, where I teach, is a religious institution. The class has not yet met because there are many uh, Jewish holidays in the fall. Yeah. And in the first class of the writing seminar, of the reading seminar that I'll be doing, we'll be looking at essays by Irving Crystal, and uh, including some of the ones that you suggested that uh, I put forward. Oh yeah, so a lot of Irving Crystal stuff. That's great. In the first class. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, in the first class. Then you'll do some Norman Podhortz probably. He's got to make an appearance, don't you think? Yeah, and uh, you know some Ruth White. And uh-huh. There's a lot of great writers out there. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely are. The students are in for a treat. Oh, I bet. And I, and and it's kind of a shame. I'm guessing that these names that are so familiar to us and were so instrumental in shaping our thinking are totally alien to the stu- these students. I bet they don't know the names Norman Podhortz, Irving Crystal, Ruth Weiss, people like that. I bet they don't. Yeah, I, I suspect you're right. I will see. And. Uh, the class I'm teaching is a, a self-selected group, and that is a, the so-called Strauss Scholars 1S, not Strauss as yeah. your teacher, Leo Strauss, yeah. or I guess your right. <laughs> teacher one generation removed, and right. you got his uh, distilled via Harry Java. Right. But uh, 
this Scott scholars are a self-selected group of people who are interested in the great ideas of Western civilization. So I think there's a greater chance that they will have heard of uh, these people, but we will see. Pete Peterson was on last week extolling the virtues of that of those of the professors in that faculty. He had some on talking about uh, talking about the Constitution and the anniversary of the Constitution. He's just a big fan of what they're doing over there in that program too. Oh, yeah, they're to a person brilliant in that program, and uh, they're so learned, and they know a lot about Judaism, they know a lot about American civilization, and they know a lot about the West. Yeah. And they really, um, the, the students who go to that program are, are in poetry. You know, you and I were talking, is it okay, I'm just free. I'm just freelancing with you here. Um, you and I were talking, a mutual friend of ours was saying to you the other day, and you were kind enough to include me in the conversation, who will be our next Irving Crystals and Norman Podhoritz's and Bill Buckley's. And uh, or who are they today and who will they be in the future? And I was just kind of lamenting the fact that it's an impossible quest because who will be the next Beethoven? It's like asking who will be the next Da Vinci. They Part of it is is that that level of scholar, the Bill Buckley, the Norman Podhortz, the Irving Crest, they don't, the Alan Blooms, our current population won't have the kinds of teachers they had. The teachers they had were so monumentally different than the kinds of teachers this generation has that it's going to be increasingly and diminishingly, increasingly difficult and diminishingly possible to get those kinds of scholars to ever bestride our country again. It's it's a sad thing to say, but that was my point. Yeah, I think there are two key things going on here, both structural. One is that it's going to be hard to find teachers who will give you a different perspective yeah. on things, again, outside the... Uh, regnant ideology that you hear on, on today's college campuses. So you're not going to be exposed to the ideas and to the greatness of Western civilization in, in the degree, to the degree that uh, even Irving Crystal, who was uh, you know, a socialist yeah. when he was in college, yeah. still uh, read all the great ideas yeah. of Western civilization or in Papart as well. Uh, so that's one, is you don't get exposed on the receiving side. But the second thing that's structural is there's, I think, in some ways, less capacity for someone to be an independent intellectual. Yeah. If you are so inclined, and yeah. even if you're conservative, and you go through the PhD process, yeah. and you become a professor, what you have to focus on is so narrow yeah. that you can't be the wide-ranging right. type of generalist intellectual That's right. that Herbert Crystal was. That's now, right. Some people can do it uh, via going outside the institutions, but a lot of that requires you to uh, be on TV and be on yeah. things that don't really uh, allow for the thoughtful interactions and the, uh, the longer-form essays that, uh, that Irving served to do. So it's hard from a, a receiving standpoint, meaning it's hard to get the teachings you need, but it's also hard to make a living doing the kind of things that Irving Crystal did. Yeah, yeah. I, I wonder what, if, what Alan Bloom's dissertation was. I was thinking, you're right, the dissertations have to be narrow now. Harry Jaffa's dissertation was on St. Thomas and Aristotle. You you could never see that anymore. It'd be like yeah. one day in the life of St. Thomas. All right, let me take a All quick right. break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is my guest, presidential and cultural historian, author. By the way, I looked up over the break, Tevi, Alan Bloom's dissertation. You want the title of it? Just you could never I'm see this. I'm dying either. for the title of it. Yeah, <laughs> the political philosophy of Isocrates. I mean, oh, you gosh. would never, you would never get. I mean, it would be Isocrates in a month, you know, or something like that. Or uh, no, but it, it would more be um, 
you know, I Socrates' uh, relationship to uh, race and gender. Yeah, 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 right, right, right. The racial and gender implications, well, you couldn't even have both. Even that would be too. It would have to be one or the other, probably. I don't know. I don't know. It's all about that stuff now. But that's why you can't create Alan Blooms anymore, I don't think, because you're not going to—okay, you take the point. Let me wend my way towards your piece in the dispatch this way. I want to talk a little bit about the debates tonight, uh, which will be taking place in a little less than an hour. From here, and I wonder, you're you're kind of in the beltway, I wonder what the sense is over there. From here, I have to tell you, it just seems like there's— not very much interest in them. This used to be debates used to be Republican debates used to be kind of the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, we loved them. We looked forward to them. We had watch parties. There's three other events tonight in the conservative circle in the, in, in the conservative um, movement in Arizona that I've been invited to that conflict with it. I, I'm just not even hearing very many, very much interest in it. I wonder if that's I mean, it would be like the Super Bowl took place last year without the Kansas City Chiefs being there. Is that what it is? Is that what it is? It's that is it's that uh, the great the great the greatest of the yeah the most interesting of the players isn't there. Is that why it's? Well, I don't know if he's the greatest, but he, I mean he's leading in the poll. Yeah, right? I mean if you don't have the number one seed there, you don't really get to have the full conversation that you need. Yeah. I actually do think the debates are important, and I think. You, can, you will potentially be able to see maybe one or two emerging from the pack. I also believe that the RNC is going to make the rules for attending the next one, the standard stricter, so you'll see more drop-off. One person dropped off Asa Hutchinson. I think it's a, a good move that he dropped off. I didn't think he belonged on the stage. Not that he's not a perfectly nice person and a conservative, but he, he just didn't have the platform. He didn't have the support. Um, I think perhaps Governor Burgum uh, should perhaps have gone as well. So, uh, and I also think that there were uh, a lot of people uh, watching the last one. The numbers were pretty high in the, yeah. in the 12, 13 million range. So, yeah. But there was uh, more I, I interest ahead of it, too. Irrelevant. Yeah. But I do think not having the front runner there is a real problem. They were, um, there was more interest in it, though, though uh, last time, ahead of time, than I'm sensing this time. And the thesis I was floating earlier, feel free to disagree with it. You probably do. But. The thesis I was floating is I wonder if there's just this generalized sense that all these polls that show Donald Trump so far ahead have had the effect of kind of settling the mind of sorts in a a sort that, well, he is kind of the inevitable nominee. So what's the point? That's just kind of the thesis I've been floating. You may totally disagree with that. I mean, I think there's a possibility, again, not a certainty. There's a possibility that Republican voters hate pollsters. Okay. And they love saying to them, hey, I like Trump. And when they get in the voting booth, and maybe if there's fewer candidates, maybe, you know, maybe they won't say that. But, uh, but the, you know, the media goes so crazy over this idea that every time he's indicted, his poll numbers go up, yeah. uh, that they like that. Yeah. Well, so, it's interesting you oh. say that about hating pollsters, because my sense was that in previous elections— Republican voters hesitated to say they supported Trump if they were taking a polling question over the phone. Yeah. And so I mean, you but, had but kind I of that, what we the call the Bradley effect. People are not honest with pollsters. Yeah. And right, you, you mentioned the Bradley effect right, right, right there. Right. Um, you know, there is a sense that sometimes people are playing games with pollsters. Yeah. And I know the pollsters will hate the fact that I'm saying this, and they think they've got all these great scientific methods. Uh, but the fact of the matter is people know that their voice in a poll of, let's say, 2,000 people or a really small number, their voice can have a big impact. Yeah. And if a lot of people 
say things that they don't necessarily believe, but they want that to be the narrative, yeah. they can affect it. It's kind of like the old um, the old Nielsen rating. Yeah. Remember, uh, yeah. you know, there, there was um, one movie, I think, about some uh, thuggish person who went found the names of the people who had the Nielsen boxes and went to their homes and forced them to watch the channel so that their show would be a, a big hit. Yeah. Uh, because very few people in a representative sample can have a huge outsized impact. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... It is, uh, yeah, okay. I, I don't want to press it too hard. It's just, you know, I, I, the lead he has over the course of so many polls, you know, two months ago, pollsters and political consultants were saying it's way too early. You can't take anything from it. Uh, they're not saying that to me. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just not saying that to me now. Look, anyway. if you have to bet on who the next yeah. nominee is, yeah. I mean, the, the most likely candidate is the former president. Yeah. Right? There's no doubt yeah. he is the most likely winner of the Republican nomination. All right. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's a lock. No, why we no, play the of game. course not. And the conventional wisdom has not been right in any of the last four, five presidential elections. So uh, let's yeah. play it out. See yeah. what okay, good. Good, good, good. That is a not bad way to get to this piece you wrote in the dispatch, uh, which is fascinatingly interesting. How to think about party dissolution. Realignment is a more likely outcome than a major party imploding. Uh, tell me what you're getting at, and let me. S- yes, I'll let you go first. And go ahead. Tell us what you're getting. All right. At. So you know, I'm a big fan of your listeners. I'm going to give them a little sense of how the sausage is made yeah. here. Okay. Uh, the di- uh, editor at the Dispatch came to me and said, "Can you write a piece about the history of parties that went away, mm-hmm. Federalists and the Whigs, yeah. and um, and say what that might mean about uh, the Republican Party or even the Democratic Party today?" And I started looking into it. And I have a rule about writing staff is I don't write anything that bores me. Okay. <laughs> if I'm bored by it, there's a problem. And I just thought all these talks about, well, you know, why the Whig Party went away, why the Federalists went away, it was just a little dull to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, of course, mention in the piece that you have some parties that have gone away in American history. But I think what's more interesting is that you've had this duopoly of the Democrats and Rep- the Republicans basically dominating American politics since 1856, right. which is the first year that the Republicans put up a candidate, John C. Fremont. Right. And since then, it's been those two parties. But those parties today are not necessarily the same parties they were 170 years ago. The parties have changed over time, not just in the policies that they promote, but also in the demographics of who votes for them. The the Republican Party was the party of black voters for the first hundred years of its existence. Yeah, but until about 1960 or so. Yeah, about 1960. Yeah, there yeah, was a specific yeah, moment we yeah, can point to, which yeah. is when Richard Nixon did not call Martin Luther King's wife in prison, right. and John F. Kennedy did call Martin Luther right. King's wife in prison. Right. And that had a huge impact on the black vote that year. Right. But, uh, the, and also Southern whites were overwhelmingly in the Democratic Party mm-hmm. for the, those first hundred years, and now Southern whites are overwhelmingly Republican. So these things change over time, and it's not just those two demographics. Right. That switched. Right. And so all these people are talking about, oh, the Republican Party can go away. I, I don't see the Republican Party going away. I don't see it collapsing, but I do see it changing. All right. And I- just like when I worked in the George W. Bush White House, the Republican Party was the party largely of college-educated whites. Uh-huh. And now it's largely the party of non-college-educated whites. Yeah, and let, the college educators have migrated to the Democratic Party. Let me take so the commercial. Let change me, over time. The issues change over time. I think the names will stay, but the parties are going to be very different as a result of a variety of internal and external changes that are going to take place over the next decade. Yeah, I want to press you on those when we come right back. Let me take the commercial break and pick up on that with you, and also some conventional wisdom. 
that's, I think, a little bit foisted or forced on us to think about the way the parties have changed, too, which I'm not so sure is accurate, um, as conventional wisdom has it. Dr. Tevi Troy and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest, presidential and cultural historian. Amongst his books most recently is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. A great read, a fun read, too. Um, We're talking about his piece in uh, The Dispatch, How to Think About Party Dissolution, Realignment, a More Likely Outcome Than Major Party Imploding. Um, I remember a column of Peggy Noonan's Tevi, probably 2016-ish, somewhere in 2016, when there was talk amongst her uh, group of friends in the Republican Party that were saying, well, you know, maybe the Republican Party has had its day and it's time to go away. She, by the way, to her credit, to be fair to her, was not of that view. She had an interesting line. She said the Republican Party is a big, great, old thing, and we should be very careful about disappearing big, great, and old things. I just kind of liked that line, and, um, and, and, and it may have been a wish. It's your thesis that it's probably also prescriptive in the sense that these parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party having been around so long, realignment and what they stand for, as well as the constituencies they represent— that's likely to change more than the names, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, those things have changed, and yeah. they do change, and they're continually changing. Look, just just compare the party under Donald Trump to the party under George W. Bush. Yeah. Different set of issues, and it's a different set of constituents. So I think that uh, we're going to continue to see those kinds of changes, even as we continue to see the dominance of these two named parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, those great old things, as you and Peggy called them. Okay. Um Here's the thing I wanted to talk to you about vis-a-vis conventional wisdom, and then we'll drill down on a few other elements that you write about. I get nauseous. I, uh, yeah, I know. You've seen it. It's not pretty. <laughs> you've seen it in two cities, I think. <laughs> it's not pretty. No more details. Okay. We'll leave the, yeah, it's almost dinner time. Um, I get nauseous when I hear... People like Joe Biden say this isn't your party. Your, this isn't your father or your grandfather's Republican Party. This is a far more extreme new thing. I get nauseous over it because I noticed that people said that about the Republican Party every time there was a Republican challenging a Democrat. They said these things about Goldwater. They said these things about Reagan. They said these things about Bush. My God, Mitt Romney uh, was supposed to put black people in chains, according to this president. And Mitt Romney was the kind of Republican that the Democrats always say they want us to really have more of. So I've I've now I, not when he was running. Right, 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 right. And they'll say it again about him. Uh, you know, may he live a long life, but they'll say it again about him when he passes. Um, and and you were around the Bush world. They said I, I, the vitriol against Bush, the Bush Hitler stuff, all that stuff. Um, it was as vit- it's it's anyway. You take my question and you take my point. There is a conventional wisdom that there's always this ongoing defamation that the Republican Party is so far removed from its roots that it's not the same thing. I just don't accept it. Look, to to the Democrats and the media, the worst Republican ever is the Republican who is currently running against them. And once that person is off the stage, either dead or retired or in some ways not a threat, 
suddenly that person is the kind of Republican we wish we could have today in contrast to whoever's running against us now. Right. So, I mean, that is a recurring thing. But it is so interesting what you say about Joe Biden saying, oh, it's not your old yeah. Republican Party. You know, I know that uh, Joe Biden said to Prime Minister of Israel Netanyahu, uh, when Netanyahu was having a conversation with him, this is not, this again, this is Biden saying to Netanyahu, this is not Scoop Jackson's Democratic Party anymore, yeah. saying, admitting yeah. that the Democratic Party is no longer pro-Israel. Yeah. And Biden is trying to say, well, you know, you better look out, BB, because the Democrats don't like you anymore. So, yeah. I mean, Biden, I guess, is, you know, is sort of a poster child for my piece. He recognizes that there's continual realignment in the parties. Yeah. It, it, that puts its finger on a great question that I want to talk to you about, if I can, when we come back, which is the, and you mentioned it in your column, the alignment of uh, the Israel sentiment within the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. And also the Jewish vote within the Republican Party party versus the Democratic Party. Can we pick up on that when we come right back? One of my favorite subjects. Yeah, I know. You're expert on it. You are the expert on it. Tevi Troy is our guest, Dr. Tevi Troy. Uh, Fight House, rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. And uh, you want to talk about a leadership training as well that you're going to be doing, bespoke leadership training based on the wisdom and insights of presidents and their administrations. I'll let you say a word about that when we come back, too. Tevi Troy, and I'll be right back. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems, enforcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, Midas believes your finances will be next. Under the guise of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer? Convert a, convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency. They've been used to store wealth throughout history. And thousands of you have trusted the veterans at Midas Gold Group because they're fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Call Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000, 480-360-3000, or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com, MidasGoldGroup.com. Dr. Tevi Troy is my guest. Tevi, before we get Democrats, Republicans, Israel, and the Jewish vote, tell me about this leadership uh, training uh next uh, uh, seminar you're going to... So I've started a new business uh, Mm -hmm. called 1600 Lessons, the leadership training seminar Uh that uh, people are welcome to sign up for. Uh, I sent you the website. You can share it on uh, on your site. And um, I do these leadership trainings based on my knowledge of the presidency and my work in the White House and my extensive knowledge of uh, presidential history. I just did one on Friday. Companies really like it. uh, And it's uh, sort of a a tonic, I guess, to some of the... uh, more prevailing woke types of leadership training out there, but it's a it's a way to help build your team to a better place based on principles that we've learned from how our presidents have led this country. Fantastic, fantastic, and maybe when you're here in Phoenix with us, you can share some of those with us. Is that if that's cool? Stay. Or if somebody wants to uh, reach out before, yep. while I'm in Phoenix, it would be great too. Good, 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 and we'll get that up on our website as well. Uh, 1600lessons.com, 1600lessons.com. All right. Uh, speaking of uh, party realignments, Republican Party, Democratic Party, Jewish vote, Israel. Take it away. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I know, Seth, that you, at one point in your career, you had uh, an affiliation with the Republican Jewish Coalition. And there was kind of a belief, expectation 
uh, within the small segment of Republican Jews that uh, as long as the Democratic Party was more supportive of Israel, the Jewish vote would be more supportive of Democrats. But as that changed over time, that as Jews be as the Republicans became more supportive of Israel and the Democrats have become less supportive of Israel, that the Jewish vote might shift and become more Republican. And that has not actually happened, that the Republican Party is now the much more pro-Israel party, I think it's safe to say. Uh, but the Jewish vote is still goes 30 percent Republican and 70 percent Democrat in the average election. Sometimes it goes a little higher, sometimes it goes a little lower. And so this uh, this idea that the Republican Jewish coalition are kind of counted on for all these years is not happening. Um, the, the Jewish vote seems, uh, I guess, stubbornly determined to remain Democratic, even though the Democratic Party is not the more pro-Israel party. And uh, I just think it's it's an interesting development. And you're now uh, 50 years into this experiment. I, I think we can uh, kind of wonder why that happened. And I'm happy to talk about that. Yeah, go ahead. Well, Bill Kristol, uh, back when he was on the conservative side of things, uh, had this one-line summary of things, which is he said that the average Jewish voter cares more about abortion than they do about Israel. And, and I think that's right, and it's not just abortion. Even though they're not getting them, by the way. I think right. that was an addendum to his point, to get too. Lower, right. Less likely to get abortions right. Than, right. than other demographics. But, right. um, but the point is not about abortion, per se. Abortion is kind of a... You know, a, a one-word, uh, it was a synecdoche, a one-word yeah, yeah. uh, symbol of a larger uh, thing. And that means the democratic social issues, um, whether it's uh, gender stuff or race or, um, or welfare, um, all those things that the Democratic Party represents, the Jewish community, to the most, for the most part, again, 70 percent of them, are more inclined in that direction. And so they're less worried about Israel and more um, interested in the democratic social and economic policy. Do they care about and, Israel? I mean, my sense is that, too, has fallen. Well, there is the sense that if you are a progressive Jew and you go to a college campus and you want to maintain your support of Israel, you're told that you can't. You have to check your Zionism at the door. Mm-hmm. That, that's the sense, that, mm-hmm. um, that you can't be with us in the progressive movement. And we've seen multiple instances of this happening uh, where, let's say, the, the Women's March that uh, protested yeah. against Trump back yeah. in early 2017, they said they weren't allowed Jews in it. And uh, you obviously have the, the squad, uh, those radical members of the um, U.S. Congress who uh, you know, are pretty uh, hostile to Jews and some of them made anti-Semitic statements, and they're definitely hostile to Israel. So, uh, yeah, there are places uh, within the Democratic Party where Jews are basically told they are unwelcome. Uh, but that has not really shifted this dynamic I'm talking about, where 70 percent of Jews typically support the Democrats and only 30 percent support the Republicans. And it's not true of the Orthodox, is it? Well, you're, um, you're pointing to an increasing shift in that the Orthodox community, which is about 10 percent but growing of the overall Jewish population, yeah. they're more 70-30 Republicans. Yeah. And they're marrying more. They're having kids more. They're intermarrying, meaning marrying non-Jews less frequently. And so they are growing demographically. There's, um, there's one study that said that uh, uh, close to 27 percent of the uh, Jews under 18 in the New York area are Orthodox. So that means that uh, in the next generation, they will be a higher percentage of the overall population. And again, that higher population uh, is more likely to vote Republican. But these demographic shifts take place over time. And so I don't think any political strategist should say that they expect a majority of Jews to be voting Republican in any election in the near future. That said, as I learned when we were on the Bush campaign in 2004, if you can 
hold down the Democratic margins. Yeah. And so if the Democrats don't run away with it in the Jewish community, that actually makes a big difference in places with larger Jewish populations, such as Ohio and Florida, and Michigan, and potentially Arizona. So um, kind of lowering the margins by which the Democrats win the Jewish vote can have a huge electoral benefit for Republicans. But it's not like the Republicans are going to get a majority of the Jewish vote in the near future. It's so darn, it's 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 so interesting because in some respects it kind of mirrors the African American vote too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, you know, the African Americans go ninety plus percent for the Democrats, yeah. and if they went eighty percent for the Democrats, that blows up all Democratic election models. But if the Republicans were to get twenty percent of the African American vote, the Democrats don't have a pathway to win elections. I've I've read recently, by the way, from some black conservative writers that the idea that that the black vote will go Republican is equally the pipe dream that you were talking about the Jewish vote going Republican. Right. But it can make a difference. Yeah, it so, can make for a example, difference. in yeah. 2018, a relatively unknown guy named Ron DeSantis is running for governor of Florida. One of his planks is a school choice plan and black women who wanted opportunities for their children to have other schools, they voted for DeSantis in larger numbers than expected. Again, majority of black women did not vote for Ron DeSantis in 2018. I'm not saying that. But the margin that the Democrat, I guess the name is Andrew Gillum, got was much lower than he anticipated. And that allowed DeSantis to win a very narrow victory in 2018. He won a much bigger victory, as you know, in 2022. Yeah, right. And it was a good thing for everybody because Gillum had some serious um, I guess, legal and yeah. sexual issues that emerged later. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a good thing for the citizens of Florida that that happened. But it was really the uh, increased number in black women voters that helped DeSantis win because of his school choice blank. Tevi Troy, thank you, brother. Thank you. Enjoy the debate tonight. Thanks. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. I'll be right back. Portions of the show brought to you by Y-Refi. They're sticking with us, notwithstanding David Dahl's music selection today. Happy birthday again to you, David. Y-Refi is a great company based here locally, Scottsdale Road and the 101. They invite anyone to come by. You won't get a sales pitch. You won't, get, um, asked, you won't be asked to sign anything. They leave the selling up to me. But what they do have is a great investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return and it's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed. It's a um, secure collateralized portfolio. There are no fees. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. And high fixed rate of return? Yeah, up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm and you can contact them at investyrefi.com. That's invest the letter y then r e f y.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI24. 888-YREFI24. We didn't ask Tevi about the pin you're wearing and I don't know what pin you are wearing unless you asked him off air young David. What pin are you wearing today? I have not and I hope he hears this on his way out but yeah. it's uh, Hughes and Fairbanks. Hughes and Fairbanks. And it's one of the oldest ones that I have. The, uh, Charles Evans Hughes. Yes, Charles Evans Hughes. Yeah, and that would be what? 19 
When was that? 1916. 1916. 1916. Yeah. When he ran against Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, yeah. And I figured since I didn't have a TR pin, this would be the next best thing. Do you not have a TR? You don't even have a bull moose or anything? Uh, I have the bull moose t-shirt. Okay. (laughs) But that's a latter-day investment. You're not wearing that to your birthday party celebration? No, I'm not not wearing a bull moose t-shirt. Why? You're going to a Teddy Roosevelt-themed restaurant. I've got my Stetson open road, sir. I'm I'm uh, of the times. You do have the times a... being 1908. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Current yeah, yeah. in 1908. Well done. Well, we wish you a very happy birthday, David. I I, I think I was watching earlier. Uh, James Carville had said on Bill Maher's podcast that the woke left is uh, stupid and naive. It's stupid and naive, and his point is they're going to ruin the Democratic Party. I'll just end it with this thought. Um, It is the Democratic Party. Uh, Whatever James Carville thinks he did in 1992 with Bill Clinton in wresting the party away from the crazies, it didn't last. Um, Bill Clinton did not create a Democratic Party um, in his image in the same way that Ronald Reagan did not create or recreate or realign the Republican Party in his image image. Um, So Bill Clinton yielded to Barack Obama and this empty vessel called Joe Biden that the left is filled up because, as I said, the left loves a vacuum and they have filled it up in the vacuum that is Joe Biden. Um, That's what the problem is right now. And we can talk more about it tomorrow. Enjoy the debate and till tomorrow. God bless you all. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.